From Dame Cacao, I'm Max Gandy, and this is Chocolate on the Road, the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world. So let's hit the road. Most people answer pretty quickly when you ask them why they buy their favorite chocolate. Usually they'll tell you it tastes the best, though they haven't tasted every chocolate ever made. But craft chocolate isn't usually on their minds. More often than not, they're picturing candy bars with chocolate coating or a sugar-laden milk chocolate from a nearby convenience store. Yet when they do finally encounter craft chocolate, what makes them decide to commit? In the moments before they make that choice, what are the factors they're taking into account? There have been many studies on the colors, smells, and even intensity of lighting, which get people to buy more food or tip them towards an impulse buy. But in the realm of craft chocolate, a consumer's single split-second decision isn't enough to sustain a whole industry. Most consumers won't even encounter craft chocolate unless they're looking for it. So my goal in this episode is twofold. One, look at how people are being introduced to craft chocolate. And two, once they have a basic understanding of fine chocolate, what makes them buy and then continue to buy craft chocolate over crap chocolate? Since canned goods and artificial preservatives came onto the market, they've had their supporters and their opponents. But no matter how you look at it, In the Western world, homemade is no longer the norm. Most of our foods have some prepared component to them, such as store-bought pasta, brownie mixes, and canned peas. The artisanal food movement has picked up steam in contrast to all of that. In local artisanal foods, we want high-quality, minimally processed versions of the foods we grew up eating. When we leave home, we crave authenticity and cultural connection with that which seems foreign. Craft chocolate delivers those characteristics in droves, marrying the familiar with the unfamiliar. But even with thousands of small-scale chocolate makers around the world, billions of people still have no idea what craft chocolate is. So how are chocolate educators connecting them to the industry? While there are endless ways to stumble upon chocolate these days, the most common still seems to be via your taste buds. Chocolate lovers the world over are organizing chocolate tastings in their homes, local chocolate workshops, and small cafes. I first learned about the world of small batch chocolate when I walked into the Chocolate Garage, a now-closed craft chocolate retailer in Northern California. Sunita de Torre, friend of the show and founder of the Chocolate Garage, conducted a variety of chocolate events around Silicon Valley. In this interview from earlier this year, she walks us through some typical tastings. The smaller tastings, people can participate a little more and there's a lot more sort of interaction and live feedback and questions. Um, so a smaller tasting might be 15 to 20, 25. And then the larger ones, like the larger sized ones we did would be like 200, 250. And so those, those ones end up being, you know, start with a talk, sort of engage the audience, get them sort of up to speed and educated about this notion of um, bean to bar and the, the idea that cacao is fermented and dried, you know, even just what the pod looks like. And that whole process is always a revelation for people. So starting with that in a, in a big format where people are mostly listening and raising their questions, raising their 
hands to ask questions. And then we would typically set up stations. Like I remember one in particular that we did at Google was um, uh, they couldn't go off site because it was too big of a conference. So they brought us on site and I brought a bunch of people with me that um, worked at the chocolate garage. And we all stood behind these tables where we had selected like two chocolates and two beverages that paired. And in that particular situation, it was um, two different tequilas, two different scotches and two different beers. Um, because those are pretty at the time and still today, I guess, pretty unusual pairings, but really beautiful pairings, easier than, than red wine in many ways. Um, and so people would go and get the two different drinks and the chocolates that paired with it and try the different flavors. So for a really large tasting like that, we would have stations where people would move around and go access the chocolate themselves. Um, and then I would sort of be floating between the different, uh, stations to go deeper with whoever wanted to go deeper. Curating what people initially try is important. It's essential that people don't just hear and understand the difference. They need to taste and experience it too. This would be at tastings or even when we were open to sell chocolate, people would come in and they would, you know, self-identify as chocolate connoisseurs. And they would, you know, they would either come in and talk about brands that they had. And I would just, you know, smile and be like, okay. And they're like, well, there's six out to taste. Why don't you sit down and taste what we're sampling today? And, you know, and then, then knowing that, you know, they're, they're fancy, like they're whatever it was, if it was a lint bar or some like Italian bar that they had found at this specialty Italian store, you know, was not even going to begin to compare to, to like this. When we would do tastings, part of our model was that included in the price of the tasting was that everyone took home their favorite bar. So I didn't necessarily understand all of the possible benefits of that, but I realized that, you know, when they would go home, they could taste that against whatever was in their pantry. You know, they take it out and put it next to a Lint 70% Excellence bar and be like, oh God, this is really not very interesting, you know? And so the advantage of keeping that experience going past the actual moment of the tasting, I think was really important for people to, to be able to to compare it to what their previous understanding of chocolate was. And I have this, this great little, um, this great little story of, um, Jim who used to come to the chocolate garage this was early on at the chocolate garage. And he was, you know, this like, I don't know, 60 year old local physician. And he would come in and, um, taste the chocolate. He'd been coming in every Saturday for, you know, I don't know, four or five weeks, something like that. And one day he came in and, and I think that because we always had chocolate out for the giving for people to taste for free and because we were just friendly and warm and welcoming, he felt like he wanted to give us something back. So he came in and he said, you know what? I brought you my favorite bar here. I want you to have this. And so he gave it to me and I did the whole, like, I could just sort of take a look at it, get a sense of like how industrial it was, flip it over, see the ingredients. And I was like, you know, judging the book by its cover. Right. And I was like, Oh, I have a sense of what this might taste like. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to break it up and I'm going to put it out. And so like he sat down to taste the chocolates of that Saturday and I put it out on a tray and I was like, Hey, let's taste Jim's bar that he brought. Thank you so much. That was really sweet of you to bring. And so I put it out and everyone was tasting it and I tasted it. And then he tasted it after he tasted all these other ones. And he looked at me and he was like, this isn't very good, is it? (laughs) And it was so cute because like, it was like, that's such a great example of like the light bulb, right? Like, oh my gosh, you know, this guy had been coming in for four or five weeks in a row, had tasted some really, really amazing stuff, brought in his favorite bar, you know, from, from his past and then sitting there himself and comparing it to the other ones realized this has nothing to do with craft chocolate. This is, this is a totally different category. 
It's that spark of recognition of the uniqueness of the product in your mouth, which is a person's real introduction to craft chocolate. It's that moment. But people won't just stumble into a chocolate tasting they found on Yelp, like I did. What's more, most chocolate retailers can't afford to rent a physical space. One such retailer is the Chocolate Bar in Wellington, New Zealand, which is run by Luke Owen-Smith. Luke's a reformed craft beer geek, and for the last four years, he's been running his craft chocolate business online only. How do you connect with your potential and current customers? Um, so we do quite a lot of events, different tasting sessions where we often collaborate uh, with different producers like breweries and tea companies, coffee roasteries, that kind of thing. And I do a few shows, things like the Chocolate and Coffee Show, um, New Zealand Coffee Festival and the New Zealand Chocolate Festival. Um, so they're really, really good for reaching um, quite a wide um, but interested audience. And then outside of that, it's it's mostly um, digital marketing, really. A lot of Facebook and Instagram ads and general social media, Google ads. Um, and then, yeah, just any other kind of uh, promo we, we can get going, really. I do a bit of writing. I, I'm doing a regular thing for Cuisine magazine, which is one of the um, sort of biggest food magazines in New Zealand. And a couple of other things like that. I was lucky to get um, a couple of TV interviews over the past couple of years. So, yeah, all, all different avenues for reaching people. Luke also uses his local market's love of craft beer to reach people who otherwise might not be able to picture the value of craft chocolate. Collaborating with other industries is vital. My history is in craft beer and in here, particularly in Wellington, we have a thriving craft beer scene. It's absolutely huge. It's the craft beer capital of New Zealand. Um, so because that's so established, I find it's a really good tool to collaborate with craft breweries and because people kind of get craft beer, you know, like they have a rough idea of what that means. It's, it really enables me to um, bridge to, to the craft chocolate and explain, you know, this on a similar line of essentially being higher quality, better tasting, and, and people kind of get it. But it would be a huge mistake to brush off the importance of word of mouth. For example, I have a new subscriber. She subscribed about two months ago, um, and I called her up when she subscribed just to have a chat. And um, she was saying that her and her partner always thought that they didn't like dark chocolate. And then they went to a friend's house and their friend had some of the chocolate we stock and they gave it to them and they were just like, like they just were so shocked. And then they signed up and they signed up for the all dark box. They didn't even get like the two bars of dark, two bars of milk. They went all dark. And that's just like amazing when you introduce somebody to something they thought they didn't like and, and they love it. It's yeah, that's, that's pretty much the most satisfying part of what I do. I'm sure it's also satisfying um, that you had customers that you influenced who then were able to influence someone else who will probably influence someone else yeah totally totally I mean that's that's really that's the key especially for a small business um we have a questionnaire running on our checkout so once people have made a purchase and it asks them how they heard about the chocolate bar it's been running on there for about two and a half years and like overwhelming majority say word of mouth you know even over TV appearances, magazine articles, all that word of mouth just trumps everything and always will. 
While TV appearances and radio interviews can bring a small bump in sales, it's usually to one particular product. In general, people just don't really go shopping for just chocolate. Though if you're listening to this show, you might. That's where the craft chocolate section of specialty stores comes in. Caputo's Market has become a big name in the fine chocolate world over the past decade and a half. Matt Caputo, the chocolate buyer for his family's fine food business, started off as a cheese connoisseur. While his love of cheese continues to flourish, so does the company's chocolate selection. Most retailers are just a, an outlet for it to, you know, get picked up by the customer. And so then it relies on on in the packaging to do the selling. Um, kind of like customer awareness has to already be there. When we started at Caputo's, we were, there was no customer awareness. The customer was not ready to buy it. So it was not something that we could just put on the shelves and, and have those bars sell themselves. I mean, way back then, no one was comfortable buying a $5 bar, let alone a $7 bar, some of the more expensive ones. So we hand sold them just like we do. And the, the approach we took was the same way we approach the cheese counter. You know, if someone walks up to the cheese counter and has questions, wants to sample something, you basically have a monger guide you through the entire process, you know, helping you find your preferences, introduce you to, you know, why you would pay so much for, for something. And so we did that. And anytime anyone would walk into the chocolate aisle, we had a strict rule that uh, someone that was knowledgeable, of course, had to be on staff at the time. Most of the time it was me or one of my good friends that also worked at the store. We would just run right over and be like, hey, can we help you find anything? You know, we actually have most of these open to sample. We'd love to help you understand what the difference is. And, and before the too long, we'd even just be putting a plate with something on it in front of them to get the conversation started. And it would go from there. You know, we'd spend anywhere from just that quick interaction and a little sample of something. Uh, but for the most part, a high percentage of the time that turned into a broader conversation where we would be spending anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour with each and every customer, really helping them understand that, you know, chocolate should be about cacao and the seed of a fruit and it should taste like fruit and and kind of dispelling the myths of, of what chocolate should and shouldn't taste like and just introducing people to it in the same way that we came to love it, being about cacao, how cacao can taste different depending on where it goes from. And uh, as part of that little conversation, we would always include a little, what we would refer to as grocery store chocolate, you know, uh, basically something really dark roasted, tons of cocoa butter and just oodles and oodles of vanilla and we use it as like this doesn't taste like cacao this and all these other things do and that was really really effective shall we say we found that the people in utah just you could see the light bulb go on especially if you we gave them the the control chocolate that grocery store chocolate at the beginning and then tasted them through say two or three or maybe four or five you know very expressive terroir driven chocolates and then go back to the initial one and say, this is the one you tasted first. Remember that one? Now tell us if this tastes like cacao or if this tastes like vanilla. And you could just see them, you know, a high percentage of, of our customers would just tumble right down the rabbit hole with us and connect to it in a really significant way. So we found Utah was really fertile ground for, for connoisseurship. 
but we had to we had to push it forward one customer at a time for sure. Do you find that that kind of mothering is still necessary for customers? Um, yeah, I do think it's still necessary. People want to taste it. They have something new um, that they're interested in. And it's, you know, now we have bars that are anywhere from, we still have stuff that's around $5, but the vast majority of our set is, let's say, in between 8 and $20 a bar. They want to be able to try that first. They want to be able to get someone's take on it, just like you would with, with cheese or in a wine tasting room or something like that. So I, I think it's it's just as important today as it ever has been to connect people, not only with the stories and the why a, a chocolate bar tastes a certain way, but with actual tastes of it too. While actually tasting craft chocolate is the ideal solution, it's not always possible. In the Japan episode of the show, Yukari Nakano of Kakao Ken mentioned that she first heard of craft chocolate from a magazine. Back in 2012, a big Japanese magazine did a feature on an American craft chocolate maker, and the idea of real homemade chocolate caught her family's attention. You can hear more about their story in that specific episode, available everywhere podcasts are downloaded. But the point is that people can be introduced to fine chocolate in any number of different ways. The question is, what makes them decide to buy, and then to buy again and again and again? In this second part of the episode, we'll look into what keeps chocolate consumers coming back to craft. After an initial tasting, or discovery of concept, many people may buy a single bar of craft chocolate. But if those consumers decide to come back for seconds, what's on their minds? Let's continue with Matt Caputo. So what seems to be the biggest factor in people deciding to buy a specific bar, like one over another? For us and the way we sell it, it's definitely packaging, number one. I hate to say it, but it's absolutely true. Like People subconsciously almost decide whether something's good or not. Um, before they take the first bite, I think the you know famous adage or, or saying from chefs is always that the eye takes the first bite. And with the case of chocolate, that is certainly the packaging. And then after that, it's just taste. Like people will really connect to some people will really connect to one bar. Other people will really connect to another. Maybe it's something that reminds them of, of something they tasted in the past or seems really new and exotic to them. I mean, there's any number of reasons that people might connect to one taste over another. But first and foremost, I think it has to be not only good, but interesting. So when you encounter a new maker or a new bar, what gets you excited about that particular bar? You know, I, I taste a lot of chocolate. Um, in fact, I taste more new chocolate than I taste brands we already carry. We, we have a different company that does wholesale of chocolate all throughout the United States. And we've been really successful at that. At the fancy food show alone, we had over 73 uh, new companies deliver samples into my hands, most of which I'd never tried before, many of which I've never seen before, never heard of before. And it's my job to hear of things. It's just it's astounding to me, the rate of new brands that are launching. And I have to say, for the most part, it's not as enjoyable as it may sound. The vast majority of them I find interesting, uh, but not good. 
if I'm going to put it on Caputo shelves or or distribute it through our, our wholesale company, I want it to be successful. So I cannot ignore packaging. So when did you notice that sort of tipping point when there were more makers and it started being you weren't looking for craft chocolate makers, but they were coming to you? We started noticing people uh, coming to us probably about five years ago, and it's just intensified every year. And now at this point, I would say for the last two or three years that I've noticed that it's not just because of us, it's just because there is a flood of brands on the market. We haven't counted this year, but we counted in 2018. We got samples from over 400 new chocolate companies, more than one every single day. Wowza. That's a lot of craft chocolate companies trying to reach an American audience. Caputo's Market in Delhi now has four locations in Utah, in the middle of the USA, and very few of those 400 samples came from nearby. But each location of Caputo's has a world-class craft chocolate section, and makers want to see their bars in it. It's a badge of honor, and it's hard to earn. But when your shop is almost exclusively online, the options and the customers don't usually come to you. Here's Luke of the Chocolate Bar in New Zealand again. So you've been sourcing chocolate bars and chocolate creations for about four years now, is that right? Mm, yeah, just coming up to four years, yeah. So what makes you decide to invest in selling a certain chocolate? Because you have to buy a lot of stock beforehand to build the subscription boxes and to keep online. What makes you decide to pull the trigger? Uh, most commonly, I, I find a new chocolate on Instagram. Is is tends to be the most common way. Occasionally, people uh, email me to tell them about what they do. But um, yeah, it's it's very common that I find out about new chocolate makers through Instagram. Um, and then um, yeah, first step is usually that if I like, you know, I'll, I'll look into what they do, look on their website, um, get a feel for it, and if it looks like the kind of thing that we would sell, I'll contact them and um, ask for some samples usually. Um, just to just to have a kind of taste before we place an order and yeah and then if it's if it's good enough if it meets uh, meets our requirements then we'll put it into our plans for our subscription boxes or, or other plans and yeah place an order what seems to be the largest factor that makes customers decide to come back and buy a bunch of or even just one at the same bar I mean, obviously, taste and texture is is number one always, but yeah, you know, the presentation, things being beautiful, makes people want to give them as gifts, and exclusivity. You know, people love the special editions, limited editions, things like that. Uh, interesting flavors, I would say. You know, people react well to unique flavor combinations that they've not tried before. We just. Uh, I guess a month or two ago, launched our exclusive Pacific chocolate box, which is something I was working on for almost a year, actually. And that's where I got um, four of my favorite New Zealand chocolate makers to make an exclusive bar just for us using Pacific Islands cacao, just 250 of each bar. And I put it together in this beautiful box, got some artwork done by an amazing local artist called Forest Drawn. I wanted to do something that was more kind of unique to us, and that's why I decided to to go down the sort of promotion of Pacific Islands 
roots just because that's something that I'm really really passionate about and I think it's something that New Zealand needs to be learning and thinking more about um, because I think that that's really the future of our chocolate industry and and I'd like to see a lot more development of, of that industry and a lot more New Zealand and Australian makers connecting with Pacific Islands growers um, which is definitely happening but there's a long way to go yet. What gets you excited about a new chocolate maker or chocolate bar or chocolate product of any kind? Definitely beautiful presentation just because in terms of if it's something I'm looking to sell like I kind of have a feel now for what's gonna sell pretty much sell itself online you know and and uh, it needs to be beautifully presented to sell online but also I look for origins that no one else is really using or hardly anyone you know because there are more and more chocolate makers and a lot of people using um, a lot of the same beans which you know, is not a major problem but um, it's it's good to offer something new to people I find that our customers a lot of our customers like to try new stuff all the time hence the subscription boxes going well um, so yeah just keep my eye out for things that are interesting and unique um, and also just things that sound delicious. When you're shopping for presents, it makes sense that you'd want a beautiful gift. If you decide on chocolate, a unique origin would be nice. But what seems to make us fall in love with fine chocolate is the connection. We buy with our eyes and then with our hearts. People connect with the memories they have surrounding chocolate. We connect with chocolate bars through the makers and the cacao producers supporting their craft. Taste is, of course, the reason you keep buying a bar for yourself. But if flavor dictated everything, many major chocolate manufacturers would already be out of business. One of the things Sunita de Tokoe did right at the Chocolate Garage is to create a community. She called it a third space, somewhere between work and home, where you can freely learn and teach others. This can be done on a lesser scale online and through social media, just by connecting people to the point that they feel like they're a part of something. The most successful YouTubers and vloggers do this. But at the Chocolate Garage, it was like you were a part of the family, of the movement of craft chocolate, and everybody was welcome. There's, a, there's, a, there's things I don't even understand that were just totally intuitive and that I think customers didn't understand. Like, I would get peeks into it. I had a customer come in once and he was waiting to, to do checkout with me and I was talking to another customer and I was explaining this is future chocolate, you know, like you can have a prepaid tab and then it's like a couple bucks off each bar and da, 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 da. And he was just listening and waiting patiently. And like, honestly, he was waiting because as we did checkout, we got to catch up and I'd hear about his kids and, you know, and so it was a relationship that was there that happened during the boring transaction. And so he was waiting patiently. And as the person was considering it, he kind of like stepped in and said, you should totally do future chocolate. You know, Sunita is part dealer, part therapist, and part, I forget what the third part was, but there was a third part. And I just, I remember him saying that and I was like, oh my God, you know, this is like a tech guy who's like pretty skilled and, and more socially skilled than a lot. But I didn't know if people don't always understand why they do things. Like he may not understand why he came to the chocolate garage, but he was really clear. He's like part dealer, part therapist, and part, I forget, like maybe educator or something. Magic. Yeah. And the therapist is the part of the man, like he calls it therapist. It's like, 
the magic was that it felt good to come in and be known and be like, hey, you know what, Sam, I have this special bar for you that you wanted. You know, I tucked it away for you. Like that feels really good, right? Because you're known and your 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 um, preferences are known and um, you feel special. And I know your name when you walk in and I know about your kids and I inquire about this and that or whatever. Like that's part of the magic and the whispering, I guess you would talk about, right? But that's like even beyond the chocolate. That actually has nothing to do with the chocolate. That has to do with like deeply seeing people and connecting with them. Every good educator will work to connect you to the stories of your food. But in a chocolate tasting or a TV spot, they've only got so much time. So I asked both Luke and Matt what they wished all consumers knew about chocolate. Anything at all. Here's Luke. I wish that people understood more how amazing the chocolate we sell is. That might sound, um, I don't know, um, I'm not feeling hard done by and, and I spend all my time spreading that message, but sometimes it does feel um, quite difficult to to truly get across how incredible um, the chocolate we sell is from, you know, just the fact that the cacao even exists like that they've some of the rarer like heirloom strains and stuff that they've actually managed to to keep them going and at the quality they are and then they've actually managed to get them from these really remote places that barely have you know roads to connect to the cities or whatever and somehow they've got those beans to these chocolate makers and then somehow these chocolate makers are surviving making this like mind-blowingly unbelievable chocolate that's like the best chocolate in the world and then somehow I get that in New Zealand and manage to sell it for like $12 it's just like I don't know the the scale of how mind-blowing it is is just amazing and um it's not always easy to um express uh, how unbelievably great it is and along similar lines here's Matt oh I'm sure we've heard it in the industry many times before but you know when I hear someone that uh, especially a customer that may be willing to buy it to purchase, you know, a hundred or even a thousand dollar bottle of wine, make an offhand remark about the cost of a ten dollar chocolate bar being outrageous. It just makes my blood boil and thinks. And, and I, and I, when I'm in that situation, of course, I have the opportunity to explain to them what the economics behind it. But I, I do wish more people had an appreciation for what a late incredible labor of love goes into craft chocolate and how this is not an industry for people that want to get rich. This is an industry right now uh, for people that are really, really dedicated to something really special. I love seeing the direction that you see a lot in the wine world of not just listing country of origin or the region or the, the varietal, name but actually the farm at the end of the day if if chocolate makers can just really easily switch their bean sources around um based on what's the cheapest and it's hard to blame them for that then it kind of suppresses the price of beans and so i think if we want to be able to charge more for chocolate bars obviously farmers need to share in that and I think one of the only ways that we're going to see that is farmers becoming brands into themselves 
so that it's a meaningful thing to a consumer. So the consumer is looking for it, kind of like you know they did with Chuao for so long or Porcelana, but at the farm level, that's what that's what I would love to see. You know, I want to see rock star farmers being able to charge lots for their beans and and people clamoring to taste those bars, not just because of the maker, but because of where the, where the beans come from. Uh, until we see the bar prices go higher, um, I think that it will will continue to be a little bit like that. I just wish the general consumer knew that um, the economics behind an eight or a ten dollar bar of chocolate. Craft chocolate continues to rise in popularity because, on average. It doesn't just taste better, but it feels better. As much as it pains some chocolate makers to hear, we eat with our eyes, and maybe a little bit of our hearts at first. But it's those great, nostalgic, unique flavors which will keep us coming back for more, both at home and on the road. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. An especially huge thank you to Matt, Luke, and Sunita for being in this episode. To learn more about our guests, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description, or on my website at deankakao.com. That's D-A-M-E. C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road.